You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, we will eventually look at verses 25 through 37, Um, but we're not going to get there right away. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. We're going to talk about love. And I know it's probably no surprise if I were to say that in marriage counseling, that what is talked about is love, right? That wouldn't be surprising. But what may be surprising to some is that some time is given a lot of the time in marriage counseling to talk about what love is. Because there's often a misconception of what love is. Love is often thought of as being, or at least primarily being, how we feel. Feeling love towards someone. But as Jay Adams so well explains, despite what TV in Hollywood wants us to believe, love and feelings are not identical. In his book, Solving Marriage Problems, Jay Adams says this, the love required of us is not something we feel, a love not under voluntary control, but something we show, a love under our control, commanded in the Bible. The first is self-oriented. The second is other-oriented. The model for married love, according to Ephesians 5.25, is God's love for his church. God did not become enamored with the human race, but he did love men in spite of their sin by sending his son to die for them. It is not because we were so lovable, so loving, or so lovely that God loved us. Rather, he loved us while we were enemies. There was nothing in us to attract him. God simply determined out of his own goodwill to set his love on us. And so we see that love in God's love. And again, Jay Adams, he says elsewhere that love is not feelings first. And, you know, in talking about this, again, it's not, this is not just my introduction, though it is. Uh, but I know normally we, we would take the time and go verse by verse through uh, a passage of Scripture that's working through a whole book. And even lately, though we've had standalones, they've been through Psalms. Um, but I, I want to be a little more systematic this morning for the most part. Again, towards the end, we're going to jump into Luke 10. But to begin with, I, I just want us to take from different passages and look at, not too extensively, it won't be exhaustively, but look at what does Scripture teach about love? What is Scripture calling us to when it commands us to love? And this love is, is not just in marriage that we're talking about. And for that idea, I would turn to 1 Corinthians 13. But this is a love that is called for in all of our relationships. Now, in thinking about 1 Corinthians, think about what we went over when we were going through it on Wednesday nights. 
that those in the church in Corinth, they wanted to speak in tongues. And they were pursuing that, considering the, that the, the greater of the gifts. But Paul intended them to push them towards what was more important, which was love. But as you see in that letter, instead of there being love among the Corinthians, there was much bickering and division. And so Paul was explaining that the very thing that mattered was the thing that was missing among them. That even if they spoke in tongues, even tongues of angels, or if they did a number of super spiritual or miraculous things, all of it would mean nothing without love. And so as we, we look at how Paul describes love there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, we see here that clearly Paul says love feels patience. Love feels kindness. Love feels... No, that, that's not what it says. What does it say? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And look at this. Oh, you can't see it. Stink. Well, there's a lot of words that are highlighted there. <laughs> uh, at least they're supposed to be. And the words that are supposed to be highlighted there are all the words that Paul uses to describe love here. And if you could see the words that are highlighted, you would notice the reason they're highlighted is because they are all verbs. It's verbs that Paul is using to describe love. That's what Scripture teaches. When we are commanded to love, we are commanded to action. When commanded to love, we are commanded to do something. It's how we treat others and what we do in looking to the best interest of the other, putting others before ourselves. So again, love is not primarily feelings. Now, a little caveat here. I'm not saying, and Jay Adams also makes clear that he's not saying, and there's a slew of others that when they talk about this, they've also made clear that this is not the case. I'm not saying that feeling love is not important. Not saying that at all. In your marriage, I'm not saying it doesn't matter if you, you don't feel love towards your spouse. The point is, though, that love is our actions and that we are to love in what we do despite how we feel. It's not about our feelings. Matter of fact, what's often wrong with how we live our lives is that we allow ourselves to be led by our feelings. But our feelings should not lead us. Instead, we should lead our feelings. And so how do we do that? Well, again, specifically talking about love, the hope is that as we persist in showing love to someone else in what we do, whether we feel love or not, that as we persist in this and seek this out for the benefit of the other, that eventually our feelings will follow along. That's the hope. That's what we're aiming for. That again, that we would not be led by our feelings, but that we would lead our feelings. 
Way too often, we let our feelings lead us, and that's never going down a good road. We do not have a faith that is based in feelings, nor should we live lives that are based in feelings, but instead in truth. And don't get me wrong either. I'm not saying that feelings are not good, or there's something wrong with feelings. Feelings are good. God gave us emotions. But in our sinful flesh, more often than not, our feelings are broken. So we need to lead our feelings, not the other way around. And so a scripture calls us to love, to love in our marriages, to love in our relationship with one another in the church, in, our, in all of our relationships. When scripture calls us to love, God's word is calling us to love like God loves. And so in that, we grow in Christ's likeness. In that, we, we are being conformed into the image of God as we love as he does. And so we see in Scripture about God's love. All right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he, he loved the world in such a way that he gave. Right? There's a verb right there. He gave. This is how he demonstrates his love. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then we have what Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Or also, too, what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That would be the opposite of love. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, this mind, this, this understanding, this attitude that, was, that should be in us, this is the attitude that Christ had and demonstrated that attitude in what he did. And what did he do? Well, if we were to continue on in that passage, we would see, although he is divine, he did not consider equality with God something he had to grip and hold on to. But instead, he emptied himself of his rights to act as God on earth by taking on the nature of a slave, miraculously being conceived and born of a virgin, coming then as a man, being seen with the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what he did, and this example and what Christ has done is the example that we are to follow. Remember what we saw in Titus, that we are to live in response to how God treated us in the gospel. God, who did not treat me as my sins deserve, so even if I am at odds with somebody, even if someone is my enemy, even if someone treats me badly, I'm still to be peaceable and kind and courteous towards them as I am to be peaceable, kind, and courteous towards all people. As I respond to them and treat them, even in their sin against me, as God treated me in my sin against him. So clearly, 
we're not just to love those who love us, right? Clearly, then, we're not just to be kind to those who are kind to us. We are to love everyone. No, if we only love those who love us in return, uh, Jesus says, what reward is there in that? Even the pagans do that. Even unbelievers do that. It doesn't take being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, being made new and have a new heart. It doesn't take any of that change to love those who love you. No, the world does that. So where's the difference in us who follow Jesus Christ? Where's the difference in us who, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Well, the difference should be here in what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 to 45. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We're to love our enemies as God has loved us when we were his enemies. And therefore we'll be like our Father. So we are clearly to love all people, all people in what we do. We are to be ready, zealous for good works towards everyone, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a priority even to our love. We read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that while we live on this earth, while we have the opportunity to do good towards others, let us do that. And let us do good especially to the household of faith, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And why? Why is there a priority to the household of faith? Well, one, I I would argue that because if if we can't even love each other right here, uh, if we can't love our fellow believer with whom we together have peace with God, with whom we are bound in unity in the Holy Spirit, reconciled to God together, and so therefore reconciled to each other, if we can't even love each other then, those of us who share this great and awesome faith, then how do we think we're going to go out into the world and love those who are enemies of God? Who love those that because they hate God, they have set themselves in hate against us? How are we going to love the world when we can't even love each other right here? I think that's one reason why loving each other, showing, doing good for one another here in the church is priority. But specifically here, as we look at Galatians, I think what's going on is that it's very clear that loving each other in the church is a priority because if we really love God, then we are going to love the family of God. Matter of fact, don't we see in 1 John that that's a test of faith, right? That if we don't love our brothers, how can we say we love God? No, but in loving each other and in serving one another, we are in that loving God and serving God. So we are to love all people, and especially the household of faith. We're to do good towards all people, especially the household of faith. And in loving people, what are we doing? 
In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, it says this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving others is what we are called to do. And I would argue that in loving others, as God calls us to, we are loving God. That if we love God, we keep his commands, right? And his commands are to love him and love others. And that really is is his law. His law is love. And so love is not just a feeling. Uh, Love cannot just be defined in these arbitrary ways that we see in the world around us. But love is actually in Scripture very specifically defined. And it's defined by God's law. We can even look at the Ten Commandments, right? Which, Which in some ways is a summation of the law. Now you see the first tablet of the commandments. They're all about loving God. Have no other gods before me. Worship no engraved images. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. That's all loving God. And the second set is about loving others, right? Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. It's loving others. Love God and love others sums up the law. So this is what love is. And so with that said, in the rest of our time here this morning, I I do want to focus here in Luke chapter 10 on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And I want us to focus on this because this begins a section in Luke, at least this is one reason, this begins a section in Luke which shows what it really means to follow Jesus Christ, what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus. We see here that in telling us what it looks like and what it means to be a disciple of Christ, it specifically is concerning in this passage of the law, specifically concerning loving others. And what we see here in this passage, or at least what we see before this passage, is the relationship between Jesus and his disciples and the identity of Jesus and his unique sonship. And some argue that the connection between this passage here, uh, starting in verse 25, and, and what came before it, some argue the connection is that in the passage before, Jesus was thanking the Father for not revealing things, and, and when he says things, it, it's probably referring to the, the present activity of the kingdom as the unique son, as the king was present that those things were not revealed to the supposed wise and learned, but instead those things were revealed to the disciples, to those who were like children. And so in our text, it's argued that there's an example here of someone who is supposedly wise, but doesn't get it. It's not revealed to him. Now, that could be the connection between what comes before this passage and, and what we read here this morning. But as I suggested, this seems to start really a new section in Luke. And as Luke begins his story here in verse 25, he says, Behold, which kind of seems to give an abrupt feeling to this passage. That it's kind of being stuck in here. And again, as I would argue, starting something new. And so I don't really think there is a strong connection between 
what precedes this passage and what we're looking at here. Though, like I said, as, as some argue, that, that may be true. And so we, we should consider that. But with that said, let's, let's look at our passage here for this morning. Again, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So what we have here to begin with is this man, a lawyer, an expert in the law, the Jewish law, the, the law given through Moses. And he asked Jesus how he can inherit eternal life. Now, Luke makes this very clear, that this man's question is not genuine. He's not looking to really find out how to inherit eternal life. He's looking to trap Jesus. He wants to see how Jesus will answer, and if he can twist it or, or somehow trap him in what he says uh, to turn people against him. Now, this often happened to Jesus. Now, though, as he asks this question about inheriting eternal life, uh, this question is equal to saying, how can I be saved? Uh, this question is of, in the final resurrection, how can I be counted among the righteous that I will rise to everlasting life as opposed to the unrighteous who will rise to everlasting contempt as understood by Daniel chapter 12? And when this question is asked, how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds by telling him how much he loves him and, and how he'll die for him one day. And, and if he just believes, he just says this prayer, repeat, repeat after me. Right, is this what Jesus says? No. No, what does Jesus do? He, he points him to God's word. He points him to the law. And so Jesus asks, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Pointing the man to the law, he was pointing to something that both the man, the, the lawyer, and Jesus would agree was authoritative. Again, when Jesus asked in verse 26, what is written in the law, how do you read it? And saying, how do you read it? Uh, the word for read here 
is a word for reading out loud or reciting. And as one commentator points out, in saying this, Jesus could have been leading him along to, to the correct answer. That in saying this, he may have been pointing him to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, which the Jews would recite three times a day. But if Jesus wasn't giving him a hint, he was at the very least making it clear that the only acceptable answer had to come from the Scriptures, that the acceptable answer came from the law, as opposed to tradition. That if the man answered by saying, Rabbi so-and-so says, that would not be acceptable. Because really, who cares what Rabbi so-and-so says? Who, who cares what the traditions say if what is said does not line up with what the law taught? And that's just like us, too, right? We have our traditions, and there's people we quote. But who cares what whoever says? Who, who cares what man-made documents say? Who cares what our traditions say if those things do not accurately reflect what the Scriptures teach? The Scriptures are the authority. God's Word is the authority. So if your only argument comes from something outside of Scripture for our faith and practice, something's wrong with that. And so again, no matter what Jesus may or may not be doing here, in either case, he is pointing this man to the law. He is pointing this man to God's word. That's where the answer is found. And this lawyer, being a lawyer, being an expert in the law, he answers by quoting, again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he quotes from Leviticus 19, 18, shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because whoever keeps these two commands keeps the law. And so Jesus replies in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. If you keep these commands, you'll keep the law. To love God with your entire being, because that, that's what Deuteronomy 6 is saying. To love God with all that you are, with your full existence. If you do that and you love others, you will keep the whole law, and whoever perfectly keeps the law will live. That person will not be guilty of sin. Now, Jesus, at another point, had pointed to these same two commands as being the greatest commandments. And when he said... The first greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is to love others. He says that the whole law and prophets hang on these two commands. In other words, the entire Old Testament hangs on these. The, uh, the law is summed up in these. It's all about these two things, love God and love others. Do this and you will live. But what's the problem? Who has done those things? Who has truly loved God as they should? Who has always put God first in their lives? Who has not had some understanding and idea of God that did not come from the Scriptures, but they made an image of Him that they, they may have liked better? That was a little more comfortable for them. Who's never taken His name in vain? Who has loved God as they should? Who's loved others as they should? Who, who's never lied? 
Uh, who's never been unjustly angry towards someone else or jealous of someone else? Who's never been crude and, and, and angry towards someone? Who has loved others as they should? None of us. None of us have kept these commands. That's the problem. And that includes this lawyer. He has not truly kept these commands either. And so we read in verse 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? What's the bare minimal that the law is calling for? Because maybe I can do that. Maybe I have succeeded there. What's the least I have to do? Who am I really supposed to love? If I only have to love my fellow Jew, okay, I think I've done that. My my fellow uh, faithful Israelite, I can do that, I think. And really, that was a common interpretation of Leviticus 19.18. That my neighbor was my fellow Jew, my own people, the one I had community in the same faith with. And so Jesus responds to this by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells of this traveler who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that means that it would have put this man on a road that was known for its dangers, was known for robbers. Robbers who would hide in dark places and crevices in the mountainside and caves, just waiting for their next victim. And what happens to this man traveling on this road? He becomes a victim of such robbers. These robbers who strip him and beat him and depart, leaving him half dead. And verse 31 says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road. Man, this, this man is, is half dead. He's in dire need. Oh, thankfully a priest is coming. Uh, one who is a descendant of, of Levi, a, a son of Aaron. And so in the order of this priesthood, Surely this one will help. This man of God, he'll help. But as Jesus goes on with the story, he says, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, there's a lot of speculation of why this priest would have passed on the other side of the road and, and not helped the man. Um, the problem is with those speculations is, is Jesus doesn't really tell us why. Uh, some argue that Uh, This priest, if he's on his way to the temple, he would have been afraid if he he checked out the man and the man was dead, he would have been defiled by his dead body and so therefore kept from serving in the temple. So he'd rather just pass on the other side. But a couple of different commentators point out that it's clear in Jesus' story that this man is traveling alone. And if that's the case, he's not going to the temple, he's going away from the temple. And so fear of defilement would not be the issue. So what is the issue? Uh, I don't know. Jesus doesn't say. He just says the priest shows up, but he doesn't help. He passes by on the other side. And then verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. Again, another descendant of Levi. And this time, the one who assists the priests in their duties. He comes. Well, surely he'll help, right? But he also passes on the other side of the road. And as Jesus tells the story... At this point, he says something that would have been totally unexpected. A Samaritan comes on the scene. The Jews despised the Samaritans. I mean, they might as well 
have been a people infected with leprosy. Uh, a matter of fact, I think the Pharisees and the chief priests, they would have rather hung out with the lepers than to hang out with the Samaritans because they despised them that much. And so at this point, Jesus' audience, who probably would have assumed the priest or the Levite would have helped, they're thinking, man, this, this guy dying on the side of the road, he has no hope. Who else can come? Now, a Samaritan comes? Oh, this, this guy's toast. There, there's no way he's getting any help from a Samaritan. But how does the story go? The Samaritan came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And verse 34 says, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then he paid the innkeeper out of his own money. And obviously he's traveling, and so was probably traveling for a reason. Uh, so he couldn't stay there the next day. But he made sure, out of his own expenses, that this man would be cared for. He gave of himself clearly for this man. The Samaritan is the one who helped. And then Jesus says to the lawyer, in verse 26, 30, 36, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, some suggest that the lawyer couldn't get out of his mouth that it was a Samaritan that helped him, that it was a Samaritan that was the hero in the story. And so instead he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So this lawyer, in looking to justify himself by asking, who is my neighbor, he found anything but justification for himself. He had to concede to the point that Jesus was making. The one who showed him mercy was a neighbor to him. See, it wasn't about who is my people, who do I share in faith with, who are the people that I have feelings towards? I wasn't, it's clearly not about feelings in all of this. But it's about who is in need. This man did not get the answer he was looking for. He was looking for the bare minimum to keep the law. But instead, Jesus brings the whole weight of the law to bear on him. And so this man would still need to be justified if he was going to inherit eternal life for real. Because this would show that he is a lawbreaker. So he couldn't be justified in of himself. And that's true of all of us, really. Again, not one of us has loved our neighbor as we should. We've not loved others. We've not reached out to those in need as we should. We have not helped when we could. We have been liars. We have been thieves. We've been covetous and jealous of others. We, we have not loved. And so therefore, we cannot be justified in ourselves either, which is exactly why Jesus came, right? Jesus, he did keep the law perfectly. He did love God with his entire existence, and he did love others perfectly. And then as the fulfillment of the law, he also fulfilled the law's demands for those of us who have broken the law even though he himself never did. He suffered the death that sinners deserve, those who would trust in him. 
He died in their place, satisfying God's wrath. He died and he rose again. So for all who will repent of their sin and believe on him for salvation, they will have eternal life in him. Because his life, his law-keeping life, his life of love is credited to us by faith. And we stand before God as justified. In him we have eternal life. So this is how you can be sure that when the resurrection happens, you'll rise and be counted among the righteous because you're righteous in Jesus, not righteous in yourself. And you'll have life. But see, for some, though, this means that we don't have to worry about the law. We can just throw the law out. Now, let's see, we're justified in Jesus, so I don't have to worry about loving God and loving others. I can just go on and, and you know, whatever I end up doing, I do. But no, that's not how it works. If you stand before God justified in the, in the righteousness of Jesus, in the law-keeping life of Jesus, if you really believe in this gospel, that the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you, that his life is now yours, and what a great and amazing gift of God's grace this is, are you really just going to keep on living as you once did? Is there really not going to be a change and an effect in your life? No, the scriptures say that's not going to happen. That this truth is going to bring about a change. If I really know the love of God in Christ Jesus, how do I not love him in return? And if I love him, why, am I wanna, why will I want to continue in the things that I know are an offense against his holiness? Why am I going to continue in the things that I know he hates? The things that Jesus had to die for and suffer for. No, if, if I know this great grace, this great gospel, then I'm going to see my sin for what it is. A disgusting offense against the God who so loved me. So why would I want to continue in my sin? How could I still love my sin? No, now I hate my sin. I don't want my sin anymore. I turn away from my sin, and I turn to Jesus alone by faith. That, that, that's what it, we're called to in repentance and faith, turning from our sin to turn to Jesus by faith. We hate our sin. We're no longer who we used to be. We now have the Holy Spirit living in us, regenerating us, making us new, growing us in holiness. And so now we do care about the law. We do care about what God says. We care about what pleases him. We care about loving God with our entire existence and loving others. And so now, instead of throwing out the law, we seek to keep these things that are pleasing to God. Not to be saved, but because we have been saved. It's a response to his grace, our gratitude, and our recognition of his lordship in our lives. There is now a difference in us. We don't throw out the law. We want to love God and love others. And so we need to understand it. And again, the parable of the Good Samaritan helps us understand it. Because as you read this, it's interesting that the question that is asked to Jesus that prompts him to tell this parable is the question of, who is my neighbor? But in this parable, Jesus doesn't answer the question of who is my neighbor, but instead the point of the parable is who are you being a neighbor to? Right, again, Jesus, when he finishes the parable, he asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? On this, Daryl Bach says, Jesus took a question about who is a neighbor and turned it around to tell a story about being a neighbor. 
The issue is not thinking about who someone else is, but what kind of person I am. When Jesus says to the scribe, go and do likewise, he is saying, do not worry about who is the neighbor, just be one. How do we fulfill the law? Not by worrying about who I need to love. What's the bare minimum? Who is my neighbor? No, we fulfill it by being a neighbor. That's what we're being called to here. We're to be neighborly. And so are you being a neighbor? Am I being a neighbor? Are we seeking to see the needs of others met? Do we see that we have the opportunity to address different needs? And if we see a need, do we, do we seek to meet it or do we, do we pass by on the other side of the road? Do we pretend we don't see it? Do we want to be more like Christ and how he loved us? We need to show mercy then to all people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Are we really giving of ourselves for one another? Are we serving one another? Now you may say, well, I I want to, but I, I don't know what needs are out there. Well, let me ask this. Are you investing in others? Are you giving of your time for others and spending time with others? Are, are you building in the relationships around you? And so that you might have the opportunity to hear and to know of the needs that are there. Or you might say, you know, there, there's just so many needs. I mean, I can't possibly meet them all. And there's truth to that. That is valid. But don't let the amount of needs that are out there keep you from meeting any needs. Uh, that's not the response. We need to look at what needs we know are there, and if we have the opportunity to meet them, then we should. If we have the means to meet them, then we should. And if all of this you're saying too, well, no one's really being a neighbor to me, One, I hope that would not keep you from being a neighbor to someone else, uh, because that misses the point. And two, I'd also push you on that as well and ask, why is that the case? Maybe they don't know about your need. Or even if you think they do, you've made it known, don't assume they've understood the need. Actually, don't ever assume. In any of this, don't make assumptions. Because whenever we assume about the other person, whenever we haven't investigated, when we haven't asked them, when we haven't seen what really is the case, when we make assumptions, we're not loving. We're not being a neighbor at all. Uh, Remember what Paul said love is. Love rejoices with the truth. Assumptions aren't the truth. Because we don't really know. We're just assuming. Don't assume. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. And love hopes all things. That is the very opposite of making assumptions. Love instead assumes the best until proven otherwise. 
And so we have to talk to each other. We have to ask questions. We're really going to love each other and seek to meet each other's needs. We need to do that. We need to be asking, who am I a neighbor to? So when I'm aware of a need, and I have the means and the opportunity to meet that need, I'm ready to selflessly give of myself, to give of myself for another, to be patient and kind, to be supportive, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than myself. To not just always be thinking about me, but also the interests of others, striving to be more like Christ in everything. You know, and sometimes loving someone else and sometimes meeting a need, it's not always doing what's comfortable. Sometimes what that person needs most is what they're going to resist most. Because sometimes the loving thing to do is call each other to repentance. And that can make an awkward and painful conversation. But if I care more about preserving this relationship, that really if I'm worried about preserving it, it begs the question, how deep is it? But if I'm worried more about that person liking me, and, and really that I'm making it all about me, that I'm not willing to confront sin and confront it because that's what's best for them, and I love them, and that's a need that needs to get met. If I'm unwilling to do that, it's not really loving. Loving someone else sometimes includes tough love. Sometimes it includes telling them what they don't want to hear, doing it in a loving way, in a gentle way, but nonetheless doing it. We need to give of ourselves to love one another. We need, even need to love our enemies and do good to everyone, and again, especially to those of the household of faith. We need to see how God's word commands us to love. And as we see what it means to love others, to be a neighbor, meeting needs that are around us, we've got to ask, are we doing this? Am I being a neighbor? So are you a neighbor? Am I being a neighbor? Let's hold each other accountable for this. Let's, let's come alongside of each other and lift each other up in this. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.